We are uh, coming to the fourth Sunday of our Advent season. We've been reading through Advent Conspiracy, and I really hope that it's been um, eye-opening and maybe a return worship for you. Uh, today we lit the fourth candle, and that candle represents peace. And I knew that coming into today, and I've, I've titled today's message, let me give you the title, that peaceful testimony is that we have love for all. We have love for everyone. We're not respecters of persons. Um, but I, I realized many years ago with, through the, the wisdom of a mentor that I didn't understand what peace was. I didn't understand what true peace was. Um, in fact, he saw within me a place of unrest. And how many of you have ever been at unrest in your soul? When someone looks at you and sees unrest in your soul and they ask you a question that kind of goes straight to the core of your soul, um, it, it, how many of you have ever gone, like your eyes open, it's like, oh my gosh, you see me, you know, like you see me. So um, I was at a place of real personal unrest and my mentor looked at me and he said, Justin, how is your peace? And that question is not one of pleasantries. That's not one of like, hey, how, how you doing? How's your mama? How's your day? How's your peace? Goes straight to the core of who you are. And it rocked me at my core because I was at a ton of unrest and he could see it. And my unrest was in two things. My unrest was in a place where I had built my identity in my own hurt. How many of you suffered hurt and you've allowed that to almost identify you as a person? Or you know someone who does. And how many of you have also, on the flip, found yourself putting your hope and your security in what the world has to offer? Even if what the world has to offer looks healthy, like religion or family. It offers false hope. You know what I'm talking about? And so, so I, I was doing both at that very moment. And my mentor looked at me and said, how is your peace? And I couldn't lie to him. I couldn't say anything other than it's not good. I'm not at a place of peace. And he read a verse to me that opened my eyes, began to open my eyes to what true peace was. And i got to tell you, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? Okay? And when I read this verse, it's going to seem almost like conflicting because these are Jesus' words. And in fact, it was the testimony of another that we look at today as we examine what I call the, the greatest baby dedication of all time. Okay? I find it the incredibly important to the Christmas story. I find it the key to the Christmas story, but we often just breeze over it. How many of you remember that Lion King, like Simba moment? So we have that kind of going on in this passage. However, it starts with this verse that my mentor shared with me, and it's Matthew 10, 34. It says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace. Well, you're the Prince of Peace. I thought... I thought you were coming to bring peace. In fact, that's what the angel said last week as we talked about the desperation of those who were downcast that said, don't be afraid, peace. Right? Well, see, that's to assume that we understand what peace is in a broken world. Apart from him teaching us. He said, do not suppose that I have to come bring peace, but I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You know that famous old Christmas passage that we read every Christmas that brings warm feelings inside. What my friend was saying was, you are trying to hold to an identity that, you, that God doesn't have for you. Your identity is found by solely pressing into Him, finding everything He intended, no matter what you've suffered at your own hand or the hands of others. That's not your, that's not your identity. You're not a victim. He's freed you from that, so the only way you find your identity is to press in intentionally. And then you can't hope falsely for something that you never had. If you come from a broken familial structure, you can't just hope that all your, all your quests and all of your questions get answered in a solid familial structure. You must press into me and then and only then will you actually learn to love like I intended. And we'll look at that commandment in a moment, but Jesus gave a new commandment to all of his disciples, to all of his church. He said, love like I have. And how did he love? Selflessly. Without a a hope in this broken world, he loved even the enemy. He loved even those who were chastising him. He loved even those who were the least and spent most of his time with it. And he expects us to do the same. So, as we've journeyed through this Advent season, we're going to take a little bit of a turn as we look to true peace and not peace as we maybe have defined it in our broken minds and our conditional love for the world. We have to define peace based on how He does. And, and one thing I pray is abundantly clear that we are seeking intentionality because God was incredibly intentional in sending Jesus. The Advent and His coming was incredibly intentional because He came pursuing your love and in your heart and my heart. It's central to the gospel story, the intentionality of who God was. And he knew that there was no way that the sin that stood between us and him could be broken by our own efforts. He had to come himself, become lion, lamb, prince of peace, and the sword. He had to become all those things to bring us to himself, offering himself in a way that we never could, his pure blood shed so that we could be His, and our union could be reality. But Jesus entered humanity and became flesh because He loved us. And today is about a love story. It's a love story that brought peace to the downcast and desperate. And I don't know if you recognize it, but I'm desperate. And I don't know if you are, but the Bible says you are. Whether we recognize it or not. It's a story of love making a way for us when we had no other way. And it's a love story of how that Prince of Peace brought peace to the enslaved who had sin holding them down like a noose and he brought them freedom and allowed them to become a people of peace. And that's where this love story begins. It beckons testimony. And it beckons testimony in three ways. And we'll look at three different groups today. We'll see the testimony of his parents. We're going to witness the testimony of the prophets. And we're going to witness the testimony of his people. So, Father, I just ask as we open the Scriptures and we look to those testimonies, I pray that they would beckon at the heart of who we are, much like the question that my mentor asked me years ago. I pray it would quake 
the very being of who we are, and we would have to answer that question, where is our peace and how do we define it? Is it true peace because we've pressed into you solely and it's upon you this Christmas that we look and we worship and it's out of that love that you had for us to come that we love everyone around us, family, friend, enemy, and the least just like you would. So have your way with us in this time. I pray your spirit would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 2, 21 to 24. Let me just read those few verses. I'll break this down. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel gave him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as was written in the law of the Lord, that every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves, a pair of two young pigeons. Let me look, let me just pause right here and we're going to say, we're going to begin with the testimony of his parents. Now his parents, if you'll read in verse 39, as we're going to read on in a moment, says they did everything to the letter of the law. They did what was required of them. And so let's go back and just examine some of the lawful acts that they performed. Number one, it was on the eighth day that he was circumcised. Well, that was lawful. That was required by law that they would circumcise their, circumcise their son on the eighth day. That would be preceded by seven days of purification for the mother. Why? Because in childbirth, we all knew that the childbirth was tied to the curse of humanity. So with all the bloodshed that would happen in her childbirth, she was considered unclean and could not be in public. She would have to go through seven days of purification alongside her husband just to present their son for circumcision. And every Hebrew boy was named at their circumcision. Why? Well, there was a, circumcision served a lot of um, health need, like it was cleanly. However, it also served as a very spiritual marking for the people of Israel. A boy was not named till he was circumcised because the removal of the foreskin represented the removal of sin and flesh. It removed that this person was new and that they were the Lord set aside for him in their law system. And so they, that when they name the child, it's a name that they are to bear because of God. Because Jesus' name came straight from the angels, straight from heaven, and it's not a family name, much like John the Baptist, which we read about just a few weeks ago. John the Baptist was a name given from heaven. Jesus was a name given from heaven. And it wasn't Hebrew. Jesus is a Greek pronunciation for a, a, a Hebrew equivalent. The Hebrew equivalent is the name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Rather appropriate for the Savior of the world. But they took notice because no one in the family had worn that name before. And he could not be named till the eighth day lawfully. It was only after this period... 33 more days could Mary go through purification before she could actually be in the gathering of the people in the temple. It was the furtherance a month after the fact she had to go through purification before she could come and consecrate her child. Baby dedication. Okay? Baby dedication. If you notice in what we read here, it mentions nothing of water. And that's why I want to encourage you. I didn't plan to get into this, but I, I want to. We've talked a little bit about the significance of believer's baptism and the symbol that it is. That someone commits their heart to the Lord, and this is the symbol, much like someone puts on a wedding band, 
of that commitment? Well, I was christened as a baby. Can I throw that out, say that? And I was told that I was baptized. But as a child, I could make no commitment in my heart to the Lord. And the, the truth is, the confusing aspect of this issue is that we, we in the New Testament have taught that the symbol, that symbol of our life dedicated to Him is baptism, much like the Old Testament symbol of a life dedicated to Him was circumcision. At the point that paedo-baptism or infant baptism became prevalent in the world was during a time when the church and government were the same. They were the same entity. And so there was a lot of growth. In fact, the populace was booming, and they had to do a census. And what they were finding was houses of two had become houses of five, like overnight, and they were still being taxed as houses of two. So how, how do we keep up with the growth? How do we manage to get the people to admit to us how many people are living in their household? I got an idea. For every child that is expected to be dedicated, every child that is to be born will make a decree that they must be ushered through the church, and every drop on the head is another head to tax. And so, I was never taught that, but I was holding to a baptism as a, that happened as a child even when I became a believer at 17. And it wasn't until I was told the truth of where that origin came from that I now had an opportunity to worship and step into obedience by following the Lord in, in baptizo or immersion as, as the Bible shows baptism was to happen. It's the way Jesus was baptized. And when he was dedicated unto the Lord, that's why we don't use water in dedication of a child. Jesus wasn't either. We're just trying to follow the letter of the law in a biblically centered church. And we don't get everything right. Amen. How many of you get some stuff wrong every once in a while? And how many of you are grateful for a doctrine of grace? But I think it's important that we put that out there so that you understand why we see things the way we do when it comes to child dedication and the separation of baptism. So here's one more thing that needs to be understood about this consecration. It's exposed in this passage. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the Lord, a pair of doves, a pair of pigeons. I've said this before, but I think it's lost on us. These teenagers were incredibly poor. Joseph and Mary were not wealthy. They were poor. It was required in numbers that anyone who had a firstborn son, who wasn't of the Levitical tribe, because the Levitical tribe was reserved for priesthood, the people who would represent and be the go-between between God and man. Every other tribe, there was a requirement, number said, in the law. And that was that you had to be able to give a redemption price. It's not a tax, but it's kind of a tax. It was required. Five shekels of silver for any firstborn son, male or uh, human or animal, for a household, had to be given as a redemption price because as of old, from the Old Testament to now, it was always understood that redemption cost something. When you have incredibly poor people, and you know the wise men haven't showed up yet because the gift of gold isn't there, otherwise they'd have had the money. 
they had to come up with their required shekels of silver just so they could consecrate their son. And in verse 39, which we're about to read, it says that Mary and Joseph did everything to the letter of the law. Well, it's incredibly expensive for a poor people and exposes just how poor they were. When you have to travel from your town to be uh, registered with census and then not even have a room to stay in and your baby's born in a manger, in a feeding trough. And then you're to set aside and be saving during the time of uh, purification your wife, isolating her, and then make the journey to Jerusalem to present this child consecrated in the temple. There's a lot of travel if you were looking at a biblical map. And so, just like them, for us, it costs money to travel. Amen? We're at the holidays. Costs some money. They paid what they had, but then they had nothing left. It was also required that the burnt offering and the sin offering be offered. It was customary that those offerings were not two pigeons or two turtle doves. Okay? What was customary was a year-old lamb and a pigeon or a dove. One was the burnt offering and one was the sin offering. Both were to have blood shed to consecrate this child as one of the Lord's. But here's the thing. The only reason you read here that they had two doves or two pigeons is because that was excusable. This was the grace of the law in this moment. If you were incredibly poor, the poorest of the poor, and could not afford a one-year-old lamb, then you would be excused and could use two pigeons or two doves. So you have the parents of Jesus who've been through an incredibly scandalous picture so far. Joseph is not even married biblically to Mary at this point. Not yet. He can't because she's been unclean through the lawful requirement of childbirth. So he cannot be with her. They had to wait eight days to name their child. And it came as a name from heaven. When they journeyed to the temple, they had to pay a lot of money and they had to wait 33 days. And then they had to go through the process, the humbling process of giving everything they could so that the temple could receive the poorest of offerings. And in the meantime, can I just say, that, that excuses the fact that she's a teenager walking through the town showing proof that she's carrying a child, knowing that she and Joseph are not yet married, and Joseph standing aside her going, hey, this is God's baby, this is the Lord's baby, which is incredibly, makes a ton of sense, right? Probably no ridicule or chastising for all of that. Then to go through all of this process, they did everything to the letter of the law. I want to say this too. This is the difference between males and females. Like that, uh, that circumcision, that removal of the flesh, the, the symbol in the world like that we're all called to remove, like that's the cost for becoming a disciple. The removal of any hope in this world. That's what it costs. For a woman where circumcision doesn't exist, if you have a little girl, the purification process was twice as long. Because there was going to be no circumcision in naming. You couldn't name your child for 14 days. And then you had to wait two months, 66 days, before you could step into public and come back to worship. It was incredibly intentional. 
And Mary and Joseph followed the letter to the law. Reading on. It says in Luke 2.25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to him, what was, as was custom in the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared for the sight of all nations. I love that. In light of revelation for the Gentiles and in the glory of your people, Israel, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be so the hearts of many let me go back and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too go back to what we started with in Matthew 10 and Jesus response of himself i didn't come to bring peace i came to bring what a sword a cutting away of anything held to here on the earth and so that my people would find true freedom true peace Unconditional love in me alone and press completely in. You have the testimony of two prophets, a male, and in a moment we'll read from a female. Deuteronomy required the witness of two testimonies for anything to be lawful and true. Jesus was asked during, the, during his ministry by the Pharisees, you testify of yourself. Where's your second witness? Because without that second witness, you're a liar. He had been testified of at this point before he can even speak as a baby in the, in the temple. We'll read of Anna's prophecy in a moment. But then John the Baptist goes on and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus testifies himself and says, I testify, but my Father also testifies of me, and so will my people. What I'm saying is, there was a myriad of testimony that affirmed who Jesus was. And Simeon, how many of you would love to be given that kind of promise by God? You won't die until you see the Savior of the world. Your, eyes will, your naked eye will be laid on the one who's come to redeem everyone and fix the sin problem. How many of you would feel like incredibly honored that you get to see that and know that? And when you are led by the power of the Spirit, like how many of you have ever been just led by the Spirit to do so? You're like, I don't know why I'm here, but I just feel like I have to go see Bob today. You know what I'm saying? I don't know why, but it's beckoning me. I just have to tell you something. That's what's going on with Simeon. He's led by the Spirit into the temple, and he doesn't, he's anticipating, but it is today. Today is the day. And he walks in, and he sees his parents and their testimony following every letter to the law. And he probably could have got caught up in all the scandalous picture that existed there. But Simeon doesn't because Simeon's holding to a promise. My eyes will see the salvation of the world. And when he lays eyes on Jesus, he goes, it's it. This is the child. This is him. And I now can be dismissed. I can die in peace. Thank God I can now step into eternity because the promise that God gave 
proves God's not a liar. And the promise that he gave is that the world will be redeemed through this man. It'll be the rise and the fall of many. He's going to bring a sword. And what he's saying and what Jesus says to himself in Matthew 10 later is this. That any false hope or broken identity that we cling to, the hurting and the false hope of the world, will be severed to truly invest and truly trust Him. Like we have to consciously hear the truth of who Jesus is and walk away from anything that we've held to in this world. Because He's unwilling. What was the first and greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's unwilling to share that spot with anyone. And here it is. When your name is I am, that's okay. So your devotion to me and your pressing into me will actually teach you what unconditional love looks like. It exceeds this broken world and all its conditions. And it will give you an ability to actually love your family that some of you have been taught, well, aren't we supposed to be with our family and like be together and be awesome forever? That's not what the Bible says. It's not even what Jesus said. That's not what the testimony of Simeon said. But here's what it says. You won't know how to love them unless you take this invitation and press in. That you are so desperate like the outcast, like the shepherd we heard about last week, that you and I do not know how to love. Our righteousness is filthy rags unless we take the invitation of Jesus who loved unconditionally and was named by heaven. Unless we welcome the Savior of the world into our lives, into our hearts, we don't know how to love 1 John 4, the apostle love said it. He said, if you say that you love, but you don't know me, you are a liar and you deceive yourself. So true peace is what this candle represents. True peace is what we're after. Not a false hope that is placed in the things of the world or identities that have been built on the hurting. The testimony of Simeon, the testimony of Jesus himself that I came to sever my people and to free them from everything that ails them in this world, even its false hopes. And then it says there was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband for seven years. After her marriage, then she was widowed and she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming to them, coming to the parents of Jesus at that very moment and gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Your second testimony your second witness required by law comes from a female prophet named Anna who had been widowed at, after seven years and gave her life to the temple. Day and night fasting and praying, day and night anticipating and not knowing it, but waiting for this very moment right here where she can prophesy that her eyes have too been laid on the Messiah, the one who will change everything, the one who came to free the world from sin. And she plays an incredibly important role in Scripture that we have a tendency in this Christmas story, I don't know about your upbringing, but mine was we never read this. Kind of breezed over it. But this second testimony goes, nope, absolutely, it's him. There is no denying it. There's no conversation around it. He is the one. Law required two witnesses. Here they are. 
And anyone who wants to negotiate that or make Christmas about anything other than the one true thing it was intended to be, the coming of the Messiah where, where Jesus, Lord of all, the Prince of Peace, stepped away from a throne to come and be born in the humblest of fashion, take on the flesh, and then die in that flesh for you and for me because it's a love story. And that love is the only love that will give you and I the ability to understand and know and receive and give away true peace. Let me ask you a question. Before we go any further, how many of you have placed hope in false hope before? And how many of you got your heart broken? Jesus came to free your broken heart. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas. Because it leads to a third testimony. That's the testimony of his people. The testimony of his church. i got to ask you, what will his church say of him? What do you say of him? What does your life tell about him? Are you, in fact, at peace? How's your peace? Is it evident? To everyone that you encounter, the people that you put their names on the cross each week as you pray for those who do not know him are at complete unrest, no peace. You can see it in their life. Have you ever asked them, how's your peace? Let that question rock the very core of who they are as a person, the soul of who they are, because you have found true peace and you have an ability to offer hope. Here's what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. He takes like the combination of the two greatest commandments. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And he puts them together. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What does he say? The testimony of a peaceful heart is a love for everyone. No respecter of persons, a love for all. How does he prove it? Here it is, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him will sit on the glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as shepherds separate sheep from goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then that king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothing, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous man will answer him and ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we thirst, see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see a stranger and invite him in? Or anyone needing clothing, and we clothe them? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? And everything I just read precedes this really important verse that's going to be on the, scripture, on the screen. And I want you to see it. This is the testimony of his church. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done unto me. How and who do you love? Matthew 5 went on and he said it like this. It's not easy. It's one of those tough sayings of Jesus. But you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He caused the sun and the, uh, to rise and fall on evil and the good. This sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not just like the tax collector? Let me ask you a question. 
I don't want you to raise your hand on this, but how many of you have an enemy? I, I hope not. I mean, but I hate it if it's true. I'll admit to you, I feel I have one. Maybe more than that. And I don't like it. I hate it. It says that my enemy in Matthew 10 by Jesus' testimony will be even family. And how many of you have experienced the dysfunction of family? How many of you put the fun in dysfunction of family? <laughs> I've experienced it. And I don't like it. It's an enemy to the very thing. I could put my hope in fixing all of that back here. I could put my hope in this structure that is supposedly healthy, but if that structure isn't founded and grounded because it pressed into the Lord, it is false hope. And I can't love that structure or the people in it unless I press completely into Him and learn to love like He loved. And then I turn back around and I love those closest to me in my home so they don't become enemies, they become those who were loved just like I was loved. And, and I offer to them hope and peace that he offered to me. I turn around and I love even those who I call enemy. Because in him, we were all enemies of God. Until he came and reconciled us to ourselves. So we have no right to continue to make enemies and draw a line in the sand. We love like he loved us. He came to us, so we go to them. He says the manifestation of this goes as far as to loving even the least. And how many of you have a tendency to avoid the least? I mean, when you drive through certain neighborhoods, you've got to lock your door because the least are here. You stand on a, I don't want to be unwise, I stand on a certain street corner and someone walks by, they, the least. And they might just be trying to get one over on me. Let me ask you a question. How many have you gotten one over on and Jesus didn't, that didn't stop Jesus from coming to you or me. It's a love story where he pursued your heart and mine. The question is, do we respect persons or do we love even unto the least? Because the testimony of a peaceful people who know the Lord and live like the Lord is our love for everyone, for all. Our love for all and the way that we respond to all. That is not just with our embrace. That's not just with our extension. It is, it is loving so much because we were freed and loved unconditionally that we, out of that motivation, go and love them. That could be in the places that you and I, if you've been reading through Advent Conspiracy, are most challenged. Your faith in Him is most challenged when your faith is actually in your pocketbook. He said you can serve God or money, but you can't serve both. No one can have two masters. And when you serve him, all of a sudden, money isn't a noose. Money's a resource by which you can advance the gospel tangibly in hopes to share the gospel spiritually. Let me ask you, how and who do you love? This Christmas is sometimes the most painful season for many people because they come from a hurtful place and their identity is found in hurt. Do you know that the testimony of church can heal that, can help that? When we press into Jesus and we give sacrificially and selflessly like he did. At Christmas Eve, we take up a benevolence offering and that goes solely to the people who need it most, 100%. We keep nothing for ourselves, nothing goes here. We take it up and we give it to those people who need it the most because we hope 
out of the love that Jesus had for us to reconcile himself, we can love them tangibly. But you don't have to wait till Christmas Eve. That's coming. We have love out loud. You can give to that today. If you have been blessed and have abundance, give out of your abundance. Jesus said to be blessed by giving out of your poverty. But love out loud is how we locally and globally give to those who need the most. And we've been talking through, and I hope you've been talking through as a life group, maybe as a family, ways that you could make Christmas more about worship and Jesus and less, less about consumerism. And here's what I've been able to experience. I've watched families care for families in this body and outside this body, and it's been a beautiful thing because they've pressed in to the love of Jesus, and out of that love they start to love unconditionally, and they're not held to the false hope of this world, not even the false hope of security and finances. Hello? So, who do we love, and how do we love? Are we a people that have a testimony of peace? evidenced by our love for all. Matthew 25 said that we're to love the least among us. Matthew 5 said that we're to love you and our enemy, not simply those that we like. And how many of you know that's hard? How and who do you love? Do we, as his church, have a testimony of peace because we love all? Father, we love you. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. And thank you for the season that commemorates that and gives us an ability to beckon our heart back to you and come to a place where we pause and go, Jesus, in everything this season, everything about what we do in this room and when we leave this place is going to be driven by worship of you and nothing else. Not worship of ourselves, not worship of our family, not worship of how anything makes us look. God, we just desire to please you and make you smile. So in the next few moments, I pray that your church would respond. I pray that the question of where our peace is found would quake and shake within us to the very core of who we are. And we can't help but practice a response right now, even in this room as this band begins to lead us. Father, I love Christmas and I'm thankful for Jesus. I know that you've called your people to be a people of peace. And God, I don't always reflect it. I confess that to you. But Jesus, I pray that you would help me this season, even right now in this moment today, that I would reflect the love that you had for me to others because that's the command you've given. And I ask this this morning with my friends. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning is about testimony. Do we have a peaceful testimony? There's a couple ways, three ways that I'd ask you to consider responding today. I mentioned your friends on the cross. We have these crosses here because we know that in the cross was the answer. Not an answer, the answer. The only one that severs our hope in anything in the world and it makes it solely about him. Whom amongst you needs to be freed from the place of their own desperation because they know they're desperate, they see it, and they're looking to you for hope? What role is the Lord calling you to play in their lives tangibly, even right now, to bring relief in their life? How can you respond? Maybe today you look at the side and you see our prayer partners and you see the table there that has the Lord's elements and you go, I, I wouldn't be asked to be an agent of peace unless God hadn't come first and sacrificed himself. So I'm not an agent of peace because I, I don't really live that sacrificially. I don't really live that selflessly. But he asked me to come to this table in remembrance of him. 
So he broke his body and he shed his blood that I might be free. Are you evidenced as an agent of peace by everyone you come in contact with, your coworkers, your friends? Would they say that of you because of the way you love them? Today, when we come to the table, let's come to the table with the thought. I have opportunity to worship Jesus as an agent of peace, the Prince of Peace, because I've been completely severed from hope in this world and completely identified with Him, and the world is weighing them down, and I get to offer them hope. So I come today in remembrance of Him, and I want to love like Him. And last, if you are here, and how many of you are just thankful for Jesus? Like this morning, you're just grateful that you had someone love you enough to free you from everything that was ailing you. Amen? Like, loved you enough to be intentional and come and not leave you squandering in your sin and bondage. If that's you, if you're just grateful, as we sing, sing out. And maybe today, maybe what you need to do is come here and find yourself kneeling at the altar just saying, God, thank you for finding me in my desperate state and not leaving me there. Loving me enough to bring me peace. Because everything that I identified with in this hurting and broken world offered me no hope until you. I ask you to stand. Let's respond, church.